May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It is a pleasure to be with you this evening, and I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 3 or to look in the worship order where you will find our sermon text for this evening. Today we're going to begin a new series on God's covenant and God's covenant of grace, His covenant relationship to His people. And this series will be called Covenant, the series of God's promise or the story of God's promise to redeem the world in Christ. And basically what we'll do each week is look at a story from the Old Testament that tells us about the covenant God made and then show how that story finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this evening we'll begin in Genesis 3. Now you know that we are members of Christ Covenant Church and we follow a covenant renewal pattern of worship and we believe that God's covenant promises form the backbone or the structure of the scriptures and that it is the plot line of the redemptive story. And so if you've been around us for any amount of time at all, you know that covenant is really important to us. It is basic to who we are and to what we do. Now, something we might not have done a very good job of is explaining what a covenant is or defining what a covenant is. About 10 years ago, I took a group of people through a study of God's covenant of grace And when I think about all the good things we did in that time, I was uh, recently made aware of the fact that very few of those people are still among us or with us. And so it's time for us to go back and revisit this very important theme from the scriptures. What is a covenant? That's a good question to ask. We've encouraged you uh, on Facebook and other places to read John Murray's little booklet, The Covenant of Grace. And in that little booklet, he explains to us that many of our forefathers defined covenant as a pact between God and men with agreements and promises. And they were all trying to come up with a definition that more or less captured those ideas. More recent theologians defined covenant as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, or a compact that God makes with man for life and blessing according to his own sovereignly imposed terms. Others say it's a legal agreement sealed with tokens. And last but not least, A a seminary professor I had said a covenant is a stipulated commitment under divine sanctions. Now, I tell you all of that because there will be a pop quiz here in a few moments and I want to see if you were listening. Now, I tell you all of that because I want you to see that the point of this is that covenant is notoriously difficult to define in just a brief sentence or two. And we believe that it's better to describe these things in the context of story. And that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. Now, in that little booklet, John Murray gives what I think is a very helpful definition when he says a divine covenant is a sovereign administration of grace and of promise. 
And the reason I find that so helpful is because Murray captures the essence of the covenant of grace by saying that it is all about who God is and what God promises for his people. Some of those other definitions seem to put too much weight on God and man, but this definition puts the weight on God and his promises and his grace. Well, my hope and prayer is that by hearing the stories of God's covenantal engagement with his people, that we will come to know and understand not only what a covenant is and who it involves and why it matters, but more importantly, I hope we come to know and understand who the triune God is and what he has promised to do for us. Along the way, if you don't see anything else, I hope you see this, is that the eternal covenant that God made with his people is a gracious oath sworn by God. It is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is sealed with the token signs for the salvation of God's people. And this is accomplished in space-time history. So, to give you an idea of what we're going to do today and for the next few weeks is every time we come to a story, we're going to start with a story. We're going to fix our eyes on the Savior. We're going to point out a few shadows and substances that come from the story. And then we will end with the signs and seals of the covenant presented to us in the story. So very simple way to approach this. Story, Savior, shadows, signs and seals. You can all get that, right? Now, our sermon text for this evening is Genesis 3, 14 to 24. If you are willing and if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. And the word of God reads, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
May God add His blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. And so we begin with story. Let's enter into this story. I'm going to give you a lot of context here. That in this ancient story, God appears as the great king over heaven and earth. Moses, the author of this gospel story, is telling a story about the one true king. The great king of all the world, including the heavens and the earth. And this great king is the Lord God. Before He began to create the heavens and the earth and everything in them, He was one God in three persons. He demonstrated His eternal attributes, His divine power, His eternal nature and creative wisdom by creating all things in the span of six days. And all of it ranged from good to very good. At the apex of His creation, God created man in His own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. And the Lord God blessed them and set forth the terms of this covenant relationship with them. This covenant was established by God for his glory and also for the good of the man and the woman and all of their descendants, including us. And God spoke to Adam and authorized him to serve as a vicegerent. Sometimes you hear it pronounced vice-regent, but it's vicegerent. It means that God delegated powers to Adam and sent him on mission in the world to act as God's representative on earth. And then Eve was made by the Lord God and given to Adam as a gift a helper suitable to him in his mission. And God made these stipulations and sanctions of the covenant very clear. He gave principles and permissions and prohibitions to the man. He told the man and the woman what he expected them to do and what he expected them not to do and why. And so the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's the principle. And he commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's permission. And he commanded the man saying, but of the tree of the knowledge and good of of good and evil, you shall not eat. That's a prohibition for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's a penalty. That's a punishment. And so you see, the Lord God showed Adam and Eve that there are consequences, both positive and negative, for our decisions and our actions. That is, for obedience and disobedience. And so what you see in these early ancient stories is that God's sovereignty establishes human responsibility. Now, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden, but one day they went out for a walk and they never came back. That's what happened. Next thing you know, the whole world is falling apart. Why? Because earlier in a passage we did not read, the story tells us that the man and the woman drew near the prohibited tree. 
And they were more than curious. They were tempted. They were lured to the tree and enticed by their own desire. They were discontent with God's gifts. They wanted more. They wanted to be more like God than God made them to be. They wanted to know what God knew. They were ungrateful. They wanted to be wise as to evil and innocent as to what was good. So they served their own appetites in that moment. Not the Lord God. And by smooth talk and flattery, the serpent deceived their naive hearts. And then when their desire conceived, it gave birth to sin. And sin, when it was fully grown, brought forth death. Now that's the story of Adam and Eve, but it's the story of every single one of us as well. Their story is our story, and we've all done the same things. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5 when he says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what's going on in this story? Well, we see that the creature creation or the creator creature relationship that God established between himself and Adam was in fact a covenantal relationship. And we know that by virtue of the story where it's placed in the canon of scripture, we know it by good and necessary consequence of interpretation, but we also know it by explicit revelation from the scriptures. You'd have to go forward several books into the Old Testament where you have a prophet speaking the words of Yahweh who said, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant and there they dealt faithlessly with me. This is what Hosea the prophet says concerning his contemporaries. And Yahweh is speaking through the prophet and telling us that Adam's descendants, as far down as the contemporaries of Hosea, Adam's descendants did exactly what he did. They broke the covenant. They did not love the Lord their God. They did not trust and obey the Lord. They did not know God or walk by faith before his face. And as a result, they were sent away into exile just like their father Adam was. Now we could say, well, that's the story of Adam and Eve, and that's the story of Judah. But I want to remind you that that's our story as well, that our story is tied up with their story. And that brings us all the way to. Our sermon text for today, where we just heard that God cursed the serpent, cursed the woman, cursed the man. If you felt that that was a strange sermon text for the evening, trust me, you should have been preparing the sermon. It is a strange place to begin, but we begin there to feel the weight of our sin and the burden of our own sin. And to hear God declaring curse after curse after curse on people who have broken covenant with him. What was happening in this story up to this point is that the covenant of creation was broken. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls it the covenant of works. It was broken in that context, broken at the tree on that 
terrible, infamous day. So Adam and Eve were guilty of sinning against the Lord. We would find, put a fine point on that by saying they were guilty of trespassing. They were guilty of stealing from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trespassing and stealing because it was off limits to them. And so they had to go beyond God's word and break God's law to get to that tree. But do you remember what the sanction of the covenant was? The minimum penalty for that transgression, the minimum penalty for that trespass was death. And not eventual, ultimate, sometime down the road death, but immediate death. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But what do we see unfolding in this story? Do we see the immediate death of Adam and Eve? Do we see them taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and consuming it and then dying as a result as if it were poison? No. Something happens in the story. A death occurs, but not the kind we expect. So from one perspective, we see that they did die immediately. In the day they ate of that tree, they died in in soul, if not in body. Something inside of them broke. And they felt it. They felt a deep spiritual existential separation from God and from each other, even from the world around them. And that's why they hid from God when he came to visit them. All of us who are conscious of our own sin, all of us who are aware of our own rebellion and trespass, all of us feel this kind of thing. We feel this knowledge, this knowing deep down inside of us, this ache, this shame, this guilt. We feel it. From another perspective, we would have to read the story and say, well, they they also died eventually. They, They died immediately. Then they died eventually many, many years later. And they died in body, not soul later on. But through the course of their life, what were they feeling? They were feeling the deep psychological and physical separation from each other. They didn't feel comfortable around each other anymore. They were naked and ashamed. And again, all of us who are conscious and aware of our own sin know this feeling. It's inescapable for those of us who are wrestling with sin and aware of what sin has done in us and what we've done to generate sin in our own life. So the question is, did they die? Did they die as God's law said they would? And the answer is yes and no. And if it's yes and no, the next question should be, so did God lie? Did he say, just kidding? It was an empty threat. No, it's impossible for God to lie. R.C. Sproul explains it like this when he says, the fact that God did not kill Adam and Eve on the day they sinned does not make God a liar. It simply makes him gracious. Why? For God takes no delight in the death of sinners. 
He is patient with his people. He does not wish for any of his people to perish. Rather, he wishes for all of his people to come to repentance. So it's clear that at this point in the story, God could have put Adam and Eve to death. He could have annihilated them, snuffed them out once for all. And he would have been just in doing so. His actions would have been totally justified. It simply would have been a matter of God paying them the wages they worked for in the garden for the wages of sin is death. And yet, instead of executing the death penalty on them, he gave them a life sentence of hard labor. Hard labor is still life. It's not death, as hard as it might be. He gave them a life sentence of hard labor. But then he went beyond that. And so as merciful as the life sentence versus death was for the Lord God, it was still not merciful enough. And so instead of executing the death penalty on them, what does he do? He establishes for them a new covenant, a covenant of grace, a covenant of redemption. How do we know that? Well, we know it because of what he says to the serpent. Embedded in the curse given to the serpent, there is this promise that God makes to redeem his people. And so to the serpent, God said, I will put enmity, conflict between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head. You shall crush his heel. And it's here all theologians throughout the Christian church have said this throughout history. That is here that God reveals the mystery of the eternal gospel into space time history for the first time ever. And it's just a hint, isn't it? Michael Horton explains that God's surprising announcement of the gospel unfolds in history until he fulfills his promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think by the word surprising, Horton wants us to understand that this is totally unexpected. This is totally undeserved. As we're reading the story, we have to hit the brakes and say, wait a minute, this is not what we expected. We knew that much more was coming because we have a fat book called the Bible. So there's a lot after the fall of man. But what is all of that about? It is about God working out the story of salvation for his people. It's about God revealing to the world the Savior, Jesus Christ, that God will send a Savior into the world to crush the serpent. And so the woman and the man and all their descendants are still under a curse of sin and death. But the Lord God extends to them hope. He extends hope that he will send a savior to reverse the curse and make every sad thing untrue. And this savior is going to come into the world, not in some special way, but in a way like every other person is going to come. He's going to come into the world by birth through a woman and he will confront the source of evil and sin and death and he will conquer that source when he confronts it. And he will do it not only for himself, but for all his people. And so the serpent, here's the summary of it. The serpent will surely die for what he has done to Adam. 
And the Savior will surely die for what Adam has done to the Lord. And this is the gospel. That God promises to rescue the world in the seed of a woman. That God's covenant of grace will extend to all of His people. So who is this woman and who is the Savior? That's the question. As the story of the Scriptures unfold, as God reveals more and more of Himself to His people, we learn more and more about this Savior and about His conflict with the serpent. I want to give you a a few snapshots from the Scriptures to show you how this story is moved forward and developed throughout the canon of Scripture until we come to Jesus Christ. In Psalm 91, verses 11 to 13, we read that He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Now, you've heard this psalm before because you know the story in the gospel where the devil quotes this psalm to Jesus when he tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the temple. It's interesting how selective the devil is in quoting this psalm because he left out the very last line I read. The rest of the psalm declares that the Christ, the seed of woman, the Savior will tread down the adder and will trample the serpent underfoot. In Psalm 110, verse 1, we read, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Why the language of footstool? Because of what God promised to do in Genesis 3.15. In crushing the serpent's head, the Christ will have a footstool for his feet. Now, it was customary in ancient cultures for victorious kings to step on the necks of their conquered enemies. You see this in the book of Joshua. He stands on the neck of some of his enemies. What does it symbolize? What symbolizes absolute victory and total dominion over the enemy. But it also symbolizes in the cosmic scale, the crushing of the serpent's head. The sovereign Lord Jesus Christ will indeed rest his feet on his enemies. They will become a footstool under his feet, crushed though they are. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, we read that once upon a time, we were children enslaved to elementary principles of the world, just like our parents, Adam and Eve, were. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, in the darkest hour of human history, when sin and death were reigning supreme and all hope seemed eclipsed by that darkness, suddenly a light dawns, a light appears and shines in human experience. And there's a woman. A virgin giving birth to the Son of God, the promised Savior of the world. What's happening there? It's a bookend to something that began in Genesis. In Genesis, we say the gospel was conceived in the womb of space-time history back in Eden. But what's happening in Bethlehem? 
What's happening in Bethlehem is that the gospel has reached full term and is now born into the world in what Paul calls the fullness of time. And there are other examples of this. I'll make a passing reference to Revelation 12, which we studied in detail some time ago. But there we see a conflict between the dragon and a woman who is giving birth to a male child. And the dragon seeks to devour that male child and put an end to him. But the child is delivered. And then eventually becomes the deliverer who comes and crushes the dragon. And then rules over the nations with a rod of iron. In Colossians 2.15, which we saw last week, Jesus comes and He disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. And thus, He disgraced His enemies. But there we see Jesus crushing and putting to an end the devil and his minions. And so according to God's grace and God's promise, the body of Christ is bruised in His arrest in his scourging and his crucifixion. He's bruised by the serpent. And yet the serpent is crushed by Christ. And then in a very peculiar passage in 1 Timothy 2. I won't take time to get into all the nitty gritty details of this passage. Except to say one thing. That Paul makes a passing reference to the importance of the promise. That the seed of woman will come and crush the seed of the serpent. When he says that it is through the seed of woman, it is through the childbirth that they will be saved if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The birth of Jesus Christ by the Virgin Mary is that important, that it is a part of the fulfillment of God's covenant of grace to send a Savior into the world to deliver His people from the serpent. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis, you would find all of these shadows, shadows that remind you of things you've heard in the realities of the gospel. And I just want to highlight a couple of them for you here as we move to a close. In chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, we see that after God pronounces a series of curses on the serpent, the woman, and the man, then God does something unthinkable. He sheds innocent blood and He makes animal skins, animal skin garments for the man and the woman. And He comes to them and they are expected to exchange their fig tree, uh, their fig leaves for these new garments. They are to give up the sinful works of their hands for the gracious and merciful works of God's hands. And this is the first time in the history of the world that the shadow of the cross and the atoning work of Jesus Christ is revealed to man. And it's revealed in space-time history and recorded for us in Holy, Holy Scriptures. This is a sign and seal of the new covenant of grace that God has made with His people and their descendants. And then finally, God exiles man and woman from Eden's paradise until the serpent should be crushed by the seed of the woman according to God's promise. And there's a guardian there to keep them out. A guardian to keep them out of paradise. Well, what's the substance of that? If you look in the book of Galatians chapter 3, and we've heard part of this in our 
Scripture reading before the sermon, we see that Christ became a curse for us by hanging on a tree. And that Christ became the curse for us that we might receive covenant blessings from God. Blessings that look like justification by faith and the promised Holy Spirit dwelling in us. God's Son shed His blood for our sins. And as a result of that, God makes these divine robes to cover us, to cover our filthy rags and our naked shame. And He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed in Christ. You have put Christ on. And then finally, we are adopted as God's children into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means for the purposes of our story here is that we are no longer homeless. We are no longer aimless. We are no longer fatherless exiles, but we have a place. We belong with God in his paradise, in his home. And this is the substance of the shadow of the cross and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In this, we see the sign and seal of the new covenant of grace that God fulfills for us in Jesus Christ. Now, that was a really long way around to say this. That God promised to rescue the world in the seed of a woman. And God kept his promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that now that faith has come to you, you are no longer under a guardian with a flaming sword. You're no longer held at bay by the law of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God for his amazing grace.